Well, as we start in on chapter 21, uh, we begin a section in 1 Samuel, as we make our way through the book, we, we begin a section that's referred to regularly in scholarship as David's wilderness wanderings. Uh, this, is, this is the time of David's wilderness wanderings here that, that really begin indicating that among other things for the next main section of narrative, so now through the end of 1 Samuel, David is going to be on the active run from Saul. He's not in the royal courts even though he's been anointed as God's king, but instead uh, Saul wants David dead and so David finds himself on the run. Uh, the events in the previous chapter that we looked at in which David and Jonathan tested Saul, you remember to see where Saul was really at with this whole thing, uh, made it very evident that Saul was out to kill David. And, said, and so instead of David now being in a place of rest, returning to his service in the royal courts, now uh, he is, as it were, out in the wilderness. He's outside the comforts of Israel. And over the next chapters, we actually have 15 different stories centered on David's wilderness wanderings. Um, now, to help, to help set the context for our study for these next chapters, I just want to take a minute this morning and remind us about some important, we can call them principles for reading these Old Testament stories effectively. Because uh, whether we're studying the Bible together on Sunday morning or whether you're reading it on your own or, or studying it a small, in a small group throughout the week, uh, we want to be able to take in the truth that's here and, and respond to it in a, in a way that applies it appropriately according to the Lord's intention. We recognize our need for that kind of help. And so, and so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give us four things to help with that process of understanding the Scriptures, of reading our Bibles accurately. I'll be brief, uh, but they can serve as a good reminder as we get into this next section. And even as we start talking about these things, you'll see why they become very important even for, for our understanding of the passage today and interpreting it properly. So, when we read our Bibles especially as we're thinking about the Old Testament, we, we read it in, in four different ways simultaneously, which sounds confusing, but it's not really. So, so first of all, and we do this just naturally as good readers, but it helps just to put this out in front of us. First of all, when we read the narrative of Scripture, we read it historically. And when we say that, we mean that we read these events that happened in David's life, knowing that they did, in fact, really happen. In fact, just as, as a point of interest, in both, uh, or actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, Jesus refers back to the study, or to the story that we're studying today, as, as factually taking place. So, so he recognizes Jesus read his Bible. He was reading the Old Testament historically. And, and maybe this doesn't need to be said, but it doesn't hurt to say it, because we remind ourselves that the Bible is not a book of myths, it's, it's a book of flesh and blood, true history. And what that means for us is that as we read the text, uh, we're reminded that, that uh, these, these uh, individuals in the passage that we're going to interact with, uh, folks like David, folks like the priest Ahimelech who's here, Doeg the Edomite, these are real people who had real experience, went through a real range of emotions and, and all of those kinds of things, which just helps us apply this appropriately. This is a real flesh and blood scenario that we're looking at here. So we read the Bible and we read it historically. Uh, secondly, as we study these narratives, we also read them literarily. And this is a very important thing to be mindful of, especially in a passage like the one we're reading this morning. So when I say we read the Bible literarily, by that, we mean that as we work through passages of Old Testament narrative, for example, we recognize that there is a certain literary craft involved in communicating the truths that are here and making connections thematically and so on throughout the Scriptures. So, so we know, because we read the Bible, we study the Bible, we know that the Scriptures are a literary masterpiece. 
And it's no wonder they're a literary masterpiece, since not only uh, were they penned by human authors like Moses and Samuel, but the Scriptures were written uh, by human authors who were uniquely superintended by God the Holy Spirit. So much so that Paul can say to Timothy that, that as, we're, as we're reading the Scriptures, we're reading the, the breathed out, the expiated words of God Himself. That's what Paul says to Timothy. So, so ultimately, while, while Scriptures have many human authors, there is one divine author, which is why we refer to the Scriptures as, as God's inspired word to us. Um, and of course, the result is a literary masterpiece with God Himself as the unifying author. And that's important for us as we seek to, to discern the meaning of the truth of passages as we go through our Bibles. So, for example, in our passage today, I already mentioned that this section begins David's wilderness wanderings. Now, in saying that, if we weren't thinking literarily, you might actually call me on making a statement like that. You might say, a statement like that just isn't true. Because first of all, David isn't in the wilderness in our passage beginning today. He's still in, he's still in Israel. He's in Nob, which is very close to where Jerusalem uh, will be located. And along with that, David's not wandering in the desert, as it were, in these narratives. He's on the run from Saul. So, so why can we say, with our integrity intact as Bible students, why can we call this the beginning of David's wilderness wanderings? Why does scholarship generally refer to this section of 1 Samuel as the beginning of David's wilderness wanderings? Well, we can say that in part because we're reading the Bible literarily. As we read our Bibles, we're paying attention to the, to the composition and unified craft of the biblical text. And when we do that, we start to notice some things. And I'll just give you a few examples. So, so think about Israel's uh, wilderness wanderings beginning in Exodus, which is where the wilderness wanderings motif comes from in the Bible. In Israel's wilderness wanderings, they began by being pursued by Pharaoh, the wicked king who wanted to kill them. Here David is being pursued by Saul, the wicked king who wants to kill him. If we're reading this literarily, we see a parallel there. Or, or in Israel's desert wanderings, the Lord provides manna from heaven. He provides bread from heaven to sustain His people. In our section today, David is sustained by bread that's consecrated to the Lord. Heavenly bread, if you like. There's a literary connection there. And in Israel's desert wanderings, they were opposed by the Edomites in Numbers chapter 20. Here in David's situation, out of the blue almost it seems, there's this fellow, Doeg the Edomite, who actually proves to be a horrific opposer of God's good way as we get into the next chapter. But there's another connection, an enemy Edomite is present. And then maybe just one more. In Israel's desert wanderings, you remember they were initially equipped with gold from their Egyptian enemies. In David's wilderness wanderings, he's initially equipped with the sword from Israel's archenemy, Goliath. So, so there are many literary parallels that are going on here. And as the Spirit-inspired intention of this text is made plain, we're able to make those connections, then they help us in our own study. As Israel wandered in the wilderness, persecuted and troubled, so David wandered in the wilderness, persecuted and troubled. Keep reading our Bibles, and what do we discover? So Jesus, he'll be in the wilderness, persecuted and troubled by the evil one. So for us, Peter can refer to Christians as, as temporary residents, as wilderness wanderers in this world. We're exiles as it were. So, so the point is that as we read these narratives literarily, uh, we, we need to do this because we're brought into a deeper understanding of the Spirit-inspired intention of the story itself, and there are these very significant gospel themes that start to emerge. And we'll press uh, more into that in, in just a moment. But we need to be able to read literarily. And then, and then just to say two more things very briefly, and we speak about these most often, 
We don't just read, read things literarily and historically. We also need to read the Bible reflectively. And this speaks to what Paul says to the Corinthians. And then he tells us these Old Testament stories serve as an example to us. So, so we can be informed by the events that are here. And it's as, as though we can hold them up as a mirror to our own life as we walk the path of faith and see what it can look like to, to serve God, to follow God through various circumstances. These are exemplary in that sense. We read it reflectively. It's like a mirror of our own hearts. And then uh, we also know, and we know this, we read the Bible directionally. And in that we, read, we, we mean that we read them as a finger pointing ultimately direct, uh, toward, toward Jesus himself, which of course is John chapter 5, where Jesus tells the religious leaders that they search the scriptures because they think that in them they have life, but it's the scriptures that actually testify to Jesus. He said, you're missing me because you're reading your Bible wrong. We have Jesus on the Emmaus Road at the end of Luke explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We have the writer to the Hebrews who shows us how all the imagery and promise and example of the Old Testament is ultimately directed toward Jesus, who's the climax of God's revelation and these kinds of things. So we read the Bible directionally, recognizing it's meant to point us ultimately, climactically to Christ and what he's accomplished. So we put all that together historically, literarily, reflectively, directionally. This is how we read narratives like this one today. Which, which can serve as a quick refresher, but it also serves uh, to, to ground our study this morning because we want to be able to say things from this passage that reflect a reading uh, that, that, uh, that, that uh, presses on some of these things. So, that's the, that's the Bible reading lesson for today. Uh, now we can begin, and we're going to begin uh, by thinking about this wilderness motif that the text uh, sets us down in this morning. And, and as we begin, what I want to do is I want to read you uh, a brief description of the wilderness, uh, this is from Eugene Peterson in his commentary on, on uh, 1 Samuel, and, and this will hit particularly close to home just given where we live and what we enjoy here in the Pacific Northwest, but I want you to listen to this as, as, as uh, Eugene Peterson speaks about the wilderness. Listen to what he says. For those of us who live comfortably in civilization, there is something enormously attractive about wilderness. So attractive that we set aside tracts of land, preserving them as wilderness, so that, we can know, so that we know we can enter wilderness whenever we feel the call of the wild. When we are in the wilderness, we are not in control. We have no assignment, no appointments, no, no appointments to keep, nothing to do but stay alert, stay alive, and that's it. When we're in the wilderness, we commonly feel our lives simplifying and deepening. Many people, after a few days in the wilderness, sometimes after only a few hours, feel more themselves uncluttered and spontaneous. Very often, even though otherwise unaccustomed to it, they may even say the name God. There's something wonderfully attractive about wilderness. But there's also something frightening about wilderness. The wild, while it may be breathtakingly beautiful, is also dangerously unpredictable. A storm can turn an angel crest sky into a devil's cauldron. An animal can change in an instant from an elegant icon into a fierce killer. The wilderness has a hundred different ways to kill us. This is the wilderness that David enters. So we take that and we can identify with what he's saying because the wilderness, as we know, is a beautiful place. Many of us find great relief going out and experiencing the wilderness that's around us. 
Uh, in fact, in fact, just recently, Miles and I had the opportunity, my boy, to, to go up to Lost Lake and enjoy kayaks on Lost Lake. It was beautiful. It was rejuvenating. The wilderness was a wonderful place. There's refreshment there. Uh, but the wilderness can also be a place of extraordinary dread. Uh, it can be a place of lostness. It can be a place of displacement. It can be a place uh, removed from comforts and safety. The wilderness can be a place where the unknowns bring fear and cause threats that we haven't before experienced. The wilderness can be a, a very scary place. And in certain circumstances and seasons of life, we can find ourselves in a metaphorical wilderness such as this. Uh, not a wilderness of refreshment, but a wilderness of deprivation, a wilderness where we feel an acute sense of danger. Uh, we can experience seasons of hardship like this, seasons of lostness, seasons of wondering uh, how we're going to make it from one week to the next. We can even experience uh, seasons where we wonder how we're going to make it from one day to the next in our lives, not least of all, as we live out our lives of faith, uh, following Christ in our lives, we can find ourselves in these positions, uh, not not. Uh, out in the beautiful, renewing, fresh air kind of wilderness, but in the scary places and in the disturbing places. And maybe even as we're talking about this, you identify with it right now. If you don't right now, no doubt there's been seasons of your life uh, where you can identify with this. But we know that wilderness landscape that can come. It comes in harsh ways. The dark clouds gather, worries, even dangers uh, start to press upon us. And what should we expect as followers of the living God in those seasons? When we face the, the geography of wilderness in our lives, whether it's in the context of, of material pressures or physical concerns, it can be relationship, hardship, spiritual depression. What should we expect as followers of the living God in those seasons? And it's a question like that that uh, David's narrative here helps answer as David finds himself in his own wilderness experience uh, in the passage that we're looking at today. Because not only do we have something of David's experience recorded historically here, but we also have something to attach to reflectively as we spoke about. In David's experience, though it's miles and millennia removed from our daily life, in David's experience, we can find something of our own experience as we live out our lives of faith. And as we consider these things, we can be helped, not least of all, because they ultimately point us to a rest and hope that's found in Jesus Christ himself. So, so with all that said, in the beginning of a study of David's wilderness wanderings, uh, for which we're going to have 15 different stories as we go through the next, the next few weeks, uh, we can have this question initially, what should we expect in these circumstances? Here's David going out. What is David going to expect as he enters into this, this dangerous, this scary season of his own life? And so from verses 1 through 9 this morning, uh, we're given some answers to that question. What, what should we expect in the wilderness seasons of life? And if you look at, at verses 1 through 6, first of all, uh, we, have, we have one answer that's there. And, and a main thing that we're taught to expect in the wilderness situations we face in life is, is that of divine provision for the moment. Divine provision for the moment. And in, and in a way, we can hear that, and it's a, it's a kind of goes-without-saying sort of answer. That's the answer we would expect uh, from, a, from a sermon on Sunday morning about going through hard times. Well, we can expect God to take care of us. That's a nice Sunday school kind of answer. Uh, but we need to, to be able to work this out from the way it's presented in the text and realize the significant and deep reminder of truth that's here for us along these lines. So, so if we do that, actually if we just start, start back from verse 1, we can remind ourselves where we left off at the end of chapter 20 with David and Jonathan separating. We don't want to forget our context. 
Because in the end of chapter 20, we were told that Jonathan, uh, he goes back to the city. So you think about that. Jonathan and David have just had this very strenuous interaction about Saul's violence toward, toward David. Jonathan and David interact, and we find Jonathan going back to the city. What is Jonathan doing? He's going home. He'll have his own pressures there, but he's going home. What does David do? Well, all that's said about David is that he left. Jonathan goes back to a place. All David does is leave. David has nowhere really to go because it's become clear now that no matter where he's going to go, Saul is on the hunt for him. Saul wants him dead. And so in our section today, we find David, ultimately we find David hungry. He's, he's on the run, he's going, and in verse 1, David ends up coming to the priest Ahimelech at Nob. Uh, earlier in Israel's history, the corporate worship of God and the, the main assembly for priestly activity had been in Shiloh with Eli and his sons, you remember that? But Shiloh had, uh, had since been destroyed, and it appears that Nob is the new primary place for worship in Israel. And as it turns out, Eli's great-grandson, Ahimelech, is the presiding priest there. And as David approaches, we're told Ahimelech was afraid to meet David. Uh, probably, Ahimelech was afraid because he'd heard about Saul's pursuit of David. After all, there was that incident with the, with the prophets there at Naoth a while back where Saul sent men and then went himself uh, to pursue David, to find him and kill him. Probably word has spread, and so Ahimelech is, is very nervous to have David around. And so he asks David why he's there alone. He doesn't come right out with a direct question. He, he, he just wants to know, why, why is nobody with you? Because no doubt this would have been strange behavior for David. He was the head of Saul's military operations most of the time, as we recall. And, and we know from this passage that one thing the military officers would do, the military men would do, is consecrate themselves before war. So no doubt Ahimelech and David had crossed paths many times. As the men were prepared for war, as they would go out and fight, David would have been through this area uh, engaging in a kind of, in a kind of uh, religious preparation. But here's David all by himself. It would have been odd to Ahimelech, and he probably has a, has a notion of what's going on. Um, he wants to know why David's there alone. David responds in verse 2, actually by saying the king has given him a secret mission. Um, so so that's, that's interesting on David's part. It is noteworthy that when David speaks about the king, uh, so often in his psalms, and even when the king is referenced from a righteous perspective in the book of Samuel, the king refers to Yahweh himself. You remember that, that one of the condemnations of Saul is, is that the people have forgotten that, that Yahweh is their king. So David comes, he says, I'm on a mission for the king, a secret mission for the king. The immediate, uh, on, on, on Ahimelech's part, immediately he would have thought, Saul, we do have to wonder what David is thinking. If under all of that he's realizing, I'm in the service of the true king here. But David is being covert, he's being sneaky. He says he's on this secret mission. My men are stationed at an unnamed location. And the main need, the main thing I'm here for, David says, is that I really need something to eat. Do you have some bread? Um, he says, do you, have, do you have five loaves of bread or whatever can be found? It's, it is worth noting that five loaves in Hebrew is a kind of idiom. It's not that David wants exactly five. It's the same thing as saying, do you have any amount of food that I can take with me? And then the priest says that he doesn't have any ordinary bread, but he has this consecrated bread. So, so as we learn down in verse 6, there's this bread of the presence there with the priest, uh, which is bread that would, would be put out uh, before the Lord as part of a weekly Sabbath ritual uh, reflected 
and, and obedience to the, the Lord's law for His people. But ultimately what that ritual represented was a remembrance of the Lord's provision for His people. Just as manna had been provided uh, from the Lord for His people in their desert, now bread was offered in return, reminding the people that the Lord is actually the one who provides for them. So this uh, Sabbath ritual was engaged in on a weekly basis. This bread of the presence is out, but it's consecrated bread. It's sacred bread. It's special, used for this occasion, and to be and it's to be eaten only by the priests after it served its sacred purpose there. Um, and, and that's the only bread that's on site, Ahimelech says. It, it's not a normal, you know, kind of pass out to soldiers on the move kind of bread. However, the priest, he, he does know the Levitical law, apparently, and he knows what Jesus is actually going to bring up when he references this story in the Gospels. Ahimelech knows that there's provision in the law for higher order purposes to supersede the immediate demands of the law. And in this case, preservation of life for David and his hunger was more important than the letter of the law. So the priest is inclined to give David the bread, but, but not without a caveat. He wants to make sure, Ahimelech wants to make sure that the men who are with David have in fact consecrated themselves. They need to have refrained from sexual activity before eating the bread. Again, this is according to the practice of, of Levitical law. David assures him that the men have. Um, and, and so we have this dialogue back and forth. Part of us immediately wonders, who in the world are these men that are being referred to in this, in this story? Because it seems very much like David is alone. Uh, but part of what we, we need to do is, is allow for some wiggle room in, in, in time here and what's happened. Because as we get into chapter 22, uh, which we will in a couple of weeks, we do see that there are a number of discontented men who have rallied around David. And the timeline is a little bit blurry as to when that starts to happen. So David may at this time have some men who have started to gather around him, though he comes alone to this place, to the priest, uh, to find food. Whatever those details are, it's a little bit foggy. Uh, but by the end of all this, David is given the bread to eat. And, and as, as he's given that bread, there is a main picture that materializes here for us. Because, because under the law, the, the, the bread symbolizes God's provision for his people. And here in a very realistic application, it's this sacred bread that directly provides for David in a context of his wilderness need. So, so we put this together and we realize that the David is in the, so far, pinnacle wilderness season of his life. He's in this hardship season. And his very first stop is, is, is here with the priest. And in this first stop, divine provision takes place for David in the moment. So, so this sacred bread of the Lord is given to David to sustain him. Uh, the, the Lord very literally gives him this day his daily bread. Right? David's immediate needs are met. And that's something that we can meditate on in a helpful way because oftentimes when we're facing the most extreme seasons of pressure in our lives, it's very easy to focus entirely on the macro concern of the situation. Isn't that the case? It's easy to focus on the macro concern of the situation and in that we fail to notice the micro provisions that are made to sustain us along the way. David had been promised the place of kingship over God's people. What a promise that is. He's been anointed as God's king. The throne will be yours. Promise kingship over God's people. Today, however, David was provided bread from God's table. It's not the throne, but it's sustaining him along the way. And I wonder if as you're going through the seasons of unique difficulty, as you navigate the geography of your own wilderness at times, I wonder if this is something that can be encouraging for you. It's encouraging for me as I, as I was thinking on this this week. Give us this day our daily bread. The Lord is the one who preserves us on a daily basis. 
The entirety of the crisis may not be solved for David. The fullness of God's promises to David are not even remotely realized at this point. But food for today is provided. So, so in, my, in my circumstances, am I watching for the Lord's immediately da- immediate daily provision as, as I navigate maybe those larger seasons of darkness that present themselves to me? Things aren't better yet, but the Lord does give me what I need to be sustained. Maybe it's the timely words of a friend. You know, maybe it's the lyrics of a hymn that bring renewal to me. Maybe it's the material blessings of someone who shows unexpected kindness to me in practical ways. Give us this day our daily bread. But in David's wilderness wanderings, the first picture we're given is that of immediate divine provision. Not total resolution, but immediate provision. So we can just ask ourselves, in the midst, in the midst of, 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 of waiting, in the midst of, of no total resolution yet, have we lost sight of the immediate provision? I ask myself this question under the text, and my answer, I'll say, is all too often yes. I don't notice the daily kindnesses of the Lord. I just want things to, to be whole and finished and fixed. But this helps check me. What should we expect in our own wilderness experiences? Well, we should expect a divine provision for the moment, which reflects what we read in the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? What are we promised through Christ? Mercy and grace to help us as we worry about a future need? No. Mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. At that moment, when we're going through it, that's when we expect, that's when we should expect the Lord's unique personal kindness to us. Not worrying about tomorrow, not worrying about the end result, but in the immediacy of the now, the Lord is the one who provides. And that's a truth that's reflected in the passage here. Give us this day our daily bread. It was reflected in the manna from heaven that came on a daily basis to God's people. And so we take that to heart uh, here in this. As we continue in the passage, we see we have that, first of all, divine provision for the moment. And then... As we continue in the passage, we see the Lord doesn't only provide uh, for the moment, uh, but but secondly, in in the context of David's wilderness wanderings, and this is a very interesting part of this section, um, conditions of extreme danger, can we just put it that way? Conditions of extreme danger prove harmless. Conditions of extreme danger prove harmless. Let me me explain this. This begins in verse 7. Where we're seemingly out of the blue, we're told there's someone else there with David and the priest. It's actually a little creepy how this is reported here. But, but in verse 7, you see, as David and Ahimelech are interacting, we're told uh, that, that Doag the Edomite, a servant of Saul, chief of Saul's shepherds, he was there that day. He was detained before the Lord, the text says. So, so, so an Edomite... Who, who as a people group, the Edomites, have and will continue to be at odds with the people of Israel. Saul is, is, speaks about Saul's victory over them back in chapter 14. They were enemies of Israel, largely. An Edomite is in this sacred area where David is. And not just an Edomite, but an Edomite who happens to be what? In the administrative employ of King Saul. So he's kind of like a mercenary Edomite. Why is, why is this guy working for Saul? But he's there in proximity to David and the priest. And we're going to read more about Doeg in the next chapter. And, and there he's not described actually as a shepherd as he is here, but literally as one who had a place over Saul's servant. So he, he actually has a prominent place in Saul's administration. And he's there while David and Ahimelech are talking. And, and while we don't get any more details than this, we have enough to where we can, we can kind of hear that dark music start to play in the background as we're introduced to this figure. This is ominous. 
As one commentator put it, this introduces a note of villainy into the narration. Um, because back in chapter 19, what, what was the order given to all Saul's servants? Do you remember that? The, the, all the servants who, by the way, Doeg is apparently in charge of, if we put things together here. Well, 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 all of Saul's servants are charged with finding David and killing him. And here's Doeg. He's detained in the temple. So something's already not right there. We're, we're not told what it is, but he's detained. He's a dark presence. And he's the head of Saul's servants who, as we know, have been charged to kill David and who we'll find out in the next chapter is just as wicked as we might have imagined. So we have this going on. In fact, probably this is the reason why David asks for weapons in the next verse, the, the immediate reason. Right, David thinks he might have an immediate situation on his hand because David oversaw Saul's bodyguards. He oversaw Saul's military units. There's no way that David and Doeg wouldn't have somehow crossed paths as the, the head platoon leader for David's part and the head of Saul's servant. They would have known each other. And as the next chapter will show, Doeg is no slouch with regard to fighting. In fact, if, if we can just have a bit of a spoiler here, Doeg's going to end up taking out 85 priests and the whole town of Nob in the next chapter. So he's a dark, nasty, effective figure in terms of his evil. And Doeg's lurking in the temple. He's a significant threat to David. David is extremely vulnerable. No weapons. He's hungry. Uh, David would have gone to the priest where he thought there'd be safety for him. But in the midst of that, very real and dark danger is lurking. Doeg's there. That's worst case scenario. Of all the places I chose, I chose this one. There he is. And what happens next? Nothing. Nothing happens. All we're told is that Doeg is there. He'll end up coming back to this place with murderous intentions later on. David will be long gone, though, by that point. As of now, Doeg, who poses a very real threat, proves totally harmless. He does nothing to David, well, which is a total shock. But, but it's just interesting to notice this, that, that though David is at his most vulnerable, well, well, David is out of his element and out of food and without weapons, having run away even from meeting with his best friend Jonathan in great haste, well, David is so vulnerable, the Lord literally prepares a table before him in the presence of his enemies. Right? Doeg does nothing to David. It's strange. But, but again, we see the way the Lord so often works in our darkest situations. I wonder if you've been in one of those places where there's, where there's very real potential for devastating harm. You're in the wilderness, as it were, in your life. It may, it may be an important relationship that's deeply troubled. It may be in physical circumstances which are just unknown and scary and seem to dominate. It may be seasons of unique spiritual discouragement. You're in the wilderness, and then in the midst of that, this, this ancillary, unexpected, very dark threat shows up as well. Right? It's something or someone, something's going on that just adds extraordinary extra angst to everything. And because this thing is present, you then reach the conclusion, surely I'm done. I mean, I was already feeling done, but now this thing's going on. Surely I'm going to be done. It seems like this is going to be the end for sure. Some kind of doeg shows up, right? But then all of a sudden it passes. The threat doesn't materialize. We can't believe it, but, but the total destruction we expected just doesn't happen. No explanation, no immediate reason. But we do see this is the way the Lord can often work. In the, in the midst of things that already seem so hard, as the pressure is building up, that the doegs can appear in already stressful wilderness situations, but the Lord is faithful. And instead of those, of those things rising up ultimately to crush us, they prove almost startlingly innocuous. 
They just don't bring the harm we expected them to bring. It doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, but it happens. It happens here. It happens in our lives. So in navigating wilderness situation, conditions of immediate danger can prove to be harmless. He makes a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's no wonder David can write the poems that he writes. And we take that to heart because things can be rough. But as Paul says, the Lord won't tempt us beyond what we can bear. The Lord is the one who keeps us. The Lord is not the one who lets us go. And, and oftentimes, uh, that, that relief can come in the form of real danger rendered harmless by God's kind hand. And we need to have eyes to see that. When it happens, we need to praise God for it when it happens. So what do we expect in the wilderness? Well, we expect the Lord's provision in the moment. And we also expect real dangers at times to be rendered totally harmless. And then, we'll just notice one more thing. In verse 8 and 9, that we go through wilderness seasons, the Lord also provides us with explicit reminders. Explicit reminders. Um, remember in the beginning of our study, when we, when we talked about how we approach reading the Bible, one of the ways we, we want to do that is historically. And when we read the Bible historically, uh, we recognize that these events really happen with all the real-life elements that come along with them. So, so, so think through this just for a moment. Put yourself in David's shoes. He's been anointed by, by Samuel as God's chosen king over Israel. He's been victorious a number of times over Israel's enemies. There's even been a, a song written about him. Right? Saul slayed his thousands, David his ten thousands, and apparently it's a song that's a greatest hit because the folks in Gath, the Philistines, they even know the song. So, so, so we see all of this going on. God's anointed king, great victory. You even have a song written about you. And then to top it off, David, he's married to the current king's daughter, best friends with the current king's son. He's the leader of the king's special forces, at least he was until last Tuesday. And, and he's a, he's a sought-after musician in the royal court. Imagine being David with all of that true about you on one day, only to have a couple days pass and find yourself now on the run in the wilderness from the very administration that's been elevating you. It is very hard to think of a more humiliating and disheartening turn of events than what David is going through. And we know it's hard on him. We need to be able to empathize with this character in the text, this real historical character. This would have been extremely hard on David. And we know that for a fact because he wrote Psalms, like Psalm 142 in these circumstances, where he says to the Lord, I pour out my complaints before you. He says things like, my spirit is faint within me. David's struggling. He's way down, and it's no surprise. And then in verse 8 here, he asks Ahimelech for a weapon. Verse 8, do you have a spear or a sword? So, so we've got, by the way, Doeg lingering in the other room. So that's not good. But Saul wants me dead. I left so quickly, I wasn't able to bring my, my stuff with me. I need, I need a weapon. Do you have a spear or a sword? Do you have a spear or a sword? And while we don't know how it, how it came to be there, Ahimelech tells David that it just so happens Goliath's sword is there. At some point, David must have placed it in the priest's care as a kind of offering, a kind of remembrance to God's faithfulness and, uh, from the event back in chapter 17 where David killed Goliath. We don't know how the sword got there. But, but do you notice how Ahimelech tells David that Goliath's sword is there? Do you notice the, the way he tells David? Just listen. He, he doesn't just say, oh, Goliath's sword is here. Go ahead and grab it. I mean, you earned it. He doesn't say that. Verse 9, the priest says, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Just imagine, Dave. Oh, yes, thank you. I forgot that the greatest victory of my life was over Goliath, the Philistine. Thank you for reminding me who he, who he was, where he's from. Whom you killed. Oh, is that what happened on that day? I'd forgotten that's what happened. No. 
No, in the Valley of Elah. Oh, that's where it was. I was just trying to think the other day where the greatest victory of my life had taken place geographically. No, that's not what he's, that's not what David's going to be saying. The priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah, it's here, it's wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it for yourself. There isn't another one here. But you hear all those details. And those details strike us as strange. Do you think David forgot Goliath was a Philistine? Do you think David forgot he killed him? Do you think David forgot the greatest victory he'd ever won was in the Valley of Elah? Why all those details? Well, as we, as we think on this for a moment, it seems that Ahimelech is doing some important ministry here. He, he seems to somehow understand that David is in a place of, of, of a need for encouragement. And not only because David's on the run, maybe Ahimelech hasn't put it all together yet, but, but he can tell that, that something is going on. And one of the main ways he probably could tell that something is going on is, is what David asked for when he came and his countenance maybe as he asked for it. I need a sword and a spear. Ahimelech, I'm in trouble. Things are going really badly for me. You know, I need a sword and a spear. What does Ahimelech do? Well, the priest reminds David of the event where David made a confession before Goliath. And you remember the confession David made before Goliath? He said, you come at me with a sword and a spear. But I come to you in the, name of the, in the name of the Lord of armies, in the name of the Lord of hosts. There's a connection here that no doubt brings a specific reminder to the, to the midst of David's wilderness experience. David takes the sword, but, but the language is clear. The sword reflects a battle not fought with David and normal weapons. The sword reflects a victory won for the name of the Lord. The Lord defeated Goliath through David, not by sword and spear, but for the glory of the name of the Lord. And it seems that Ahimelech is able to put that together for him. You can just hear, hear the, the line come through. I need a sword and a spear. Ahimelech must have gone, uh-oh. Oh. He's obviously pressed down. Things already seem a little bit weird. And that sounds a lot different than the last time I heard David, David say something in a place that would otherwise be fearful and distressed. Last time he was saying, you can come at me with that stuff all you want. I'm going to come at you in the name of the living God. Something's going on here. And so instead of, instead of just letting David start to engage in what appears to be a kind of self-reliance, uh, he, he, he says to him, you know, I've got Goliath's sword here. Do you remember Goliath? Of course David does. But he proceeds to tell him all the details, reminding him exactly what happened there. It reflects a battle that the Lord won for you. And this, and this is a pivotal thing to recognize in our own experience because to make it through the wilderness experience, we don't just need the daily provision of God and we don't just need uh, that relief from immediately dangerous things that can present themselves. We also need the reminders that it's not by our own hand that we'll make it through. It's so easy to find ourselves in a position where we begin engaging with our own devices. If I just had this, I'll be okay. I just need this, I'll be okay. If this can be in place, if I can put that, if I can put that where I need it, then I'm going to be able to make it through these things okay. And of course, there's wisdom and prudence and thinking through all of those things. David takes the sword. David needs the sword. But at the same time, we recognize there is an initial posture that we take that is not reflected in taking up things in our own hand, but instead turning things over to the hand of God as He cares for us through these kinds of circumstances. Recognizing that ultimately it's the Lord's to do to preserve us, it's the Lord's to do uh, to, to care for us. And when we need a, a tangible reminder of these things, this is where we're brought back to the very center of the gospel itself. David is reminded about how the Lord worked victory for God's people as he picks up Goliath's sword. What do we need when we're in the midst of the darkness? Even if we can't see through the immediacy of our current situation, we can look at another situation and see the Lord is the one who wins, who fights and wins victory for me. Obviously, that drives us straight to the cross of Christ. 
In this we know the love of God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not the love of God is shown for us in this, that my circumstances, which are really messed up right now, are made right right away. No. In this is the love of God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we define our circumstances by that victory of God going forward, knowing that if He would extend His hand for me in that way during that time, He will certainly extend His hand for me now and preserve me all the way to the end, just as He's promised to do. And so in those wilderness experiences, uh, we can be brought to places uh, like, and I've quoted it to you probably too much, but I'm going to do it again, like, like Heidelberg 1 reminds us of. You know the, the, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That things always go my way after about 20 minutes of trouble. No. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm always able to understand my situations and that nothing ever approaches me uh, that I can't discern and sort out immediately. No. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own. But I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. In fact, He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. All things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's the reminders. We need the reminder because that's the ultimate victory that's been won. And we need those reminders. We need the reminder of the cross when we're going through the wilderness experience because it tells us, in fact, in the second song we sang, we sang about it. It tells us that these things are not the end for us. We look forward to the resurrected reality of a new creation where all is made whole and we will get there because the Lord is the one who brings us there. Even if it means there's a season where He makes a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And so we thank God for His Word that brings us reminders like these and helps us persevere when the days seem uniquely difficult. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we do ask that we would be encouraged by Your Word, that we would look to Christ, the significance of His victory, that that would be what we rest ultimately in. And as we go forward on a daily basis, may we know the reprieve of Your timely mercy extended to us, and when, O oh Lord, we feel ourselves to be at an end of ourselves, may we turn again and know that your love is measured for us in the cross and that guarantees an eternal future with you that can never be shaken. We're thankful for that and we rest in that time and time again. May we be renewed in it this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen.